You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here with Marie on RCR. Continuing my strong female leaders in politics series, it is with great pleasure I welcome co-leader of the New Zealand Outdoors and Freedom Party, Sue Gray, to the show. Good morning, Sue. How are you? Good morning, Marie. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And yeah, but apart from being a bit chilly this morning, I'm great. Yeah, it is so good to have you. And we're going to do something really, really novel. So we're going to talk about politics. Yippee! Let's do that. Let's do that. I said the same to Helen Houghton. We all have so many diverse interests and things that we want to talk about. And we often forget about the great thing that's about to happen here in a couple of months, which of course is the election on October 14. And I thought we could talk about politics. We might drift off into some other topics as we go along. How is the campaign going for you and the team under the umbrella? Yeah, look, the umbrella's been great fun. We already had a really good team under the New Zealand Outdoors and Freedoms Party, but it's certainly fun working with a whole network of people all around the country, and so we can do so much more coverage than we could do otherwise. Yeah, and it's been interesting. I spoke to Hannah uh, Tamaki last week, and she she sort of said the same thing. She said it's been really neat to have everybody together. One of the things that I found really intriguing is the media, I don't think, quite know how to handle the umbrella that piece in the herald on sunday i said to hannah i read it and it was you could just see the astonishment that they couldn't quite compute how you and brian as fully fledged growing up adults could sit down work out um an agreement in an umbrella and bring two teams of people together and form a campaign Yeah, and I don't understand why they think it's so difficult. I mean, we did it in all of the freedom meetings, We, you know, at Parliament. There were people from all over the country with all different ideals and backgrounds and races, cultures, jobs, everything. And because we had a common purpose, it didn't matter to anybody there. So why should it matter with politics? You know, New Zealand's full of diverse people. Mm. It's worked together. And do you think that that actually highlights that we've got more in common as opposed to more that pulls us apart? Absolutely. I mean, we're all human beings. And the day we start to celebrate that we are different, I think is really important. You know, we we, we all want the same. We all want a home. We want a family. We want friends. We want a bit of um, certainty and for our future. But within that, we all have different things as well. And so why can't we pull together? Mm. Now, you ran in the by-election in Tauranga. And yes. You actually did pretty well up there, you know, considering it is very much a um, a national stronghold. What are some of the learnings that you took from that by-election to the campaign now? Yeah, so Tauranga was a great training ground, really. Um, And, you know, the same old problem that I'd experienced previously in Nelson and getting admitted to the meetings. Like, I always imagined that if you were a candidate, all candidates would have equal access uh, to any campaign meetings. But no, apparently it doesn't work like that in New Zealand. And there are chosen candidates who get invited and the others don't get invited. So we learned to be really um, resilient and innovative and basically run our own campaign and work with the establishment when we could 
and highlight the failings of the establishment when the establishment would try and exclude us. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was really um, when I got to know Brian and Hannah a lot better was they came down, they didn't have a candidate in that campaign, but they came down to try and give the smaller parties a voice. And I appreciated so much what they did. And they were getting great crowds. We were getting way bigger crowds for their meetings than um, the, the bigger candidates parties were getting for their meetings so it just showed that there was a huge demand from the public for something different and people were really prepared to get behind us and support us and I ended up getting right on five percent of the vote even though I was new to um, Tauranga. That in itself is no small thing as we know from MMP I mean no political candidate has actually entered into parliament by the threshold alone they've always had a candidacy vote. So to actually achieve 5% within a seat in itself shows you that that movement is potentially there. Helen Halton said to me the other day that uh, one of her constituents said to her that this was very much the election of the minor parties. Are you seeing that when you're out canvassing in, with your team and out in the electorate at the moment? Absolutely. Well, I'm seeing two main groups of people. I'm seeing the people that have traditionally been the kind of freedom voters who have seen the issues early on, and they completely understand the whole globalist agenda and the World Economic Forum and all of the problems that we're facing. And they're really big supporters, and that's fantastic. But there's also what I'm seeing, what I call the kind of golf club brigade. And they're the people that that are often educated, affluent. Uh, They've had a pretty good run in life. They've often done well in their own businesses. They've got great friends and networks. They travel. Um, They may not always be very brave at articulating their concerns, but they'll come to me one-on-one and they'll say, I really don't like the way this country's heading. There's something really wrong here. How do I raise these conversations with my friends? And so, you know, we're working out some different strategies for them to feel a bit more comfortable. They don't need to go into a head-on, hard conversation about vaccination, rights and wrongs, that sort of thing. But just talk about, you know, what kind of future do they want for New Zealand? And are they concerned about this globalisation and 15-minute cities and all of this sort of loss of rights and freedoms? Mm. And I believe there's a massive percentage of New Zealanders that are sitting in that group that yeah. they wouldn't call themselves freedom people, but they're not at all happy with the mm. current options. Well, we uh, commissioned a poll in Northland, as you may be aware, and one of the numbers that stood out for me in that poll was within the candidate vote, and the undecideds were 30%. Mm. So nearly one third either didn't want to disclose who they were going to vote for or simply didn't know. Yeah. That number is huge. Well, it, it is huge. It is huge. But, you know, I it's, it's I think it's understandable because anybody that's been following politics in New Zealand would know not to vote for any of the parties that are currently in government because when we needed them, they were not there for us. And, and it doesn't matter whether they agree or disagree or think that they agree or disagree. The very least they can do is listen to the people that they represent and, and come and engage and ask, you know, how they can help and that sort of thing. But to the contrary, all of those conversations were closed down and not just with the Labour Party. But, I mean, we had several occasions where Chris Luxon, the leader of the National Party, actually publicly shamed his MPs, in one case um, his Whanganui MP, for, mm. for meeting with Freedom 
voices. And and Maureen Pugh was another, yeah. Yeah, Maureen Pugh for for daring to question the climate narrative, which, of course, when you look at basic biology, you have to ask some pretty serious questions how on earth they're getting away with it. Well, it's becoming an environment where actually asking questions is now no longer allowed. Well, that's what they want because, of course, they can't defend their narrative. And the only way that they can defend what they're trying to do is by intimidating, bullying and harassing people so that they don't ask the question. So, you know, part of what I've been trying to do is to start the very conversations that they don't want us to have. Because as soon as people ask even one or two questions, they start to see how it's, it's like a bubble and you pop the bubble and the, the whole mirage just disappears. Mm. So they can't afford to have that. Yeah. So you mentioned before in terms of not really looking at voting for anyone that's currently inside the political tent, but in order to actually get any change, one needs to be in the tent to do it. So how do you get there? I mean, 5%, as you know, I mean, you've had a whiff in Tauranga that you could potentially do it, but realistically, how do you believe that you could get there to actually have a voice within at least the chamber to spark debate? So that's the reason behind the Umbrella Party, Freedoms New Zealand, that we we know that it's confusing for small or for voters to understand the differences between all the small parties that sound very similar. You know, a lot of people are talking about freedom. They're starting to talk about questions about the globalist agenda. Um, but, you know, to by ourselves, we can only do so much. And it's also confusing for voters who desperately want us to unite together. They're repeatedly asking us to unite together. And then it feels like even the freedom voices aren't listening to them. So we said, okay, we will unite. We will. And I went around the country actually a couple of times talking to every freedom leader that I could talk to from all of the minor parties. Um, I met as many as I could in person. Some of them I talked by Zoom several times as well or by phone, trying to understand what it was that was blocking them from uniting. Um, and, and you know, um, I think it's actually fear, which is really crazy. I think they're actually fearful of losing their own their own. Um, priority position as a leader of a party, which to me is is actually quite horrifying because my vision for the whole freedom movement is it's much more people-focused and it's much less about leadership. It's much more about encouraging people to step up and, and create their own um, so well, their own communities, their own self-sufficiency and their own way forward. And really it's about the leaders getting out of the way and letting them do that. Mm. So yeah, so um it's been it's been quite a um interesting and frustrating experience in some ways talking to some of the other freedom leaders who who are just so fixated on well it has to be us it has to be me but you know the the freedom umbrella that we've come up with to me is the perfect solution because we have a registered political party freedoms nz but within that we have the separate parties that are also registered parties and they keep their own integrity Mm. and so we agree on what we agree on but we can disagree on the things that we disagree on and the day we get into parliament we can keep working together or we can split up as our own separate parties and that's completely in accordance with the electoral rules Um, or we can work together on some things and and work separately on other things so Mm. for me it's totally a win-win there's Mm. just no downside and we're putting all our votes together 
So let's just unravel this theme for a second. Going back to that Northland poll, Matt King has put a lot of his eggs in that Northland basket. Mm. And I think he was surprised that the number from a candidacy perspective for democracy in New Zealand was 2%. So getting in as a candidate from a Northland perspective is highly, highly unlikely. So even if all the 30% undecided decided to go democracy in New Zealand, the national candidate at that time was polling at around 30, 36%. So what time is required for an umbrella to be able to continue to be formed, like pulling people in? Is it possible to actually still say to, to Matt and the team at democracy, it's not too late? Absolutely. The, it's only on the, what do they call it, rip day, I think, or you know, mid-September that we have to finally commit to who are members of the umbrella so we can join more in and up until then we'd much prefer to join them in sooner rather than later obviously because it's it's it takes a long time like the really focused committed voters understand every nuance of everything Mm. that's happening but but the great majority of voters they 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 don't really understand and once they sort of get an idea then it's difficult if you say look actually we did want you to vote for this party but now it's called something else so it makes a lot more sense to just pull together sooner rather than later, I I believe. I mean, we can do that. That's the thing. I just can't understand why they can't see it, except perhaps, you know, Matt's obviously got some deals with the National Party already and he's a little bit nervous about um, how... He can he can sort of be an independent freedom party and meet meet his agreements with the national party. But even on that kind of thing, mm. we can talk about it. And you know, my experience, and we've done it all the time with Freedoms NZ. We think that we've got completely different views. We sit around, we talk about them. We actually find that we agree on ninety percent of it, and the rest of it doesn't really matter anyway. Mm. So there's always a way forward. So what do you mean by deals with the national party? Extrapolate well, on that. Well, my understanding is that he's he's very heavily influenced by the National Party. His his board members are from the National Party and he's got some kind of pre-agreement with the National Party. And I believe he's spoken about it in the past that they will definitely go with national if they're elected. Right. Whereas Whereas we are much more um, keen to stay independent and we'll obviously look at any any discussions on the table. But my my personal preference, I think, would be to actually stay outside the leadership cabinet team because then you're you basically lose your independence to talk about the very things that you're there for. Mm. So it may present a problem for Matt, um, but it may not. And let's talk about it and see if we can find a way through it. What are some of the deal breaker issues for you? Bill of Rights, let's start there. Yeah. Okay. So the very first principle is people first, people before globalists, people before corporations. And really for me, that is a guidance for everything else that we we really, if all of the parties that put people first could theoretically work together really constructively. So within that, what is it to be a person, to be a person and to live life as a as an individual is having your fundamental freedoms, your freedom of speech, your freedom of expression, um, your freedom of opinion, your freedom of conscience, which is a really big one, that the law protects our conscience, and yet the government's been trying to say that we can't act on our conscience. So we definitely have to strengthen 
all of those fundamental rights and freedoms. And, and my analysis is it's not even something a government's got any business getting involved in. How dare a government that's elected to represent us even believe that it's got a right to influence our, our thoughts and our, our basic freedoms? So, you know, there's a lot of um, education that goes with that to just really get people thinking about what it means so that we're more resilient in future if they try this type of thing again on us that we don't get get snowed into it you know the I mean I'm really I'm, I'm basically a constitutional lawyer I love I love the law I love the constitutional issues I love discussing and looking at what's happening all around the world and looking for better ways of doing things and at the moment New Zealand's got an incredibly weak constitution um we we it's it's snippets of information all over the place they sometimes come up with some really good things and then there's some really serious lapses a lot of people don't really even understand what their rights are the education around it is so bad that you know people have just really got no idea um and you know we've got this clause in the bill of rights that says that parliament can make laws that are inconsistent with the bill of rights like how could that even be so that sort of thing is is for me, a really important change. And as far as I know, all of the other kind of freedom parties would agree with that. Mm. Yeah, I know that was something that Helen is very, very strong on over at New Conservative. Mm. How difficult is that to, from a legal perspective with your, with your lawyer hat on now? How difficult or easy is it to, to get that more robust in our society, those protections and freedoms that are held within the Bill of Rights? Yeah, well, actually, the Supreme Court did a pretty good decision at the end of 2021, the Fitzgerald and Queen decision, where they said that every law must be interpreted with a rights-based approach. So they must they must um, have regard to fundamental rights and freedoms and interpret the laws accordingly, and decision-makers must act accordingly. So in theory, that's great, but in practice, most decision-makers don't know that, and many courts, many of the lower courts are quite surprised when I turn up in court and start talking about Fitzgerald and the Queen. It's like, oh, we didn't sort of know that we had these statutory rights now and that these requirements for statutory interpretation. So again, it's a big education issue. And that's a start. But the best way of doing it would be to do it in Parliament and actually entrench our Bill of Rights so that it's there for all to see. It's easy to find. We have a discussion about it. Everybody understands it. And, and it's it's got sort of entrenched protection forever. Mm. Um, that be my preference. It's in practice is more difficult than it sounds. Um, I set up a group, a Facebook group called, um, I think it's Let's Create a People's Constitution for New Zealand. And I set it up about three or four years ago. And I, I was actually quite surprised about all the different views because some people want the Treaty of Waitangi to become our constitution. Some people want He Whakaputanga to become our constitution. Some people want the Bill of Rights to be entrenched. Some people want us to adopt the Iceland model or the American constitution or all sorts of different constitutions. And so it isn't absolutely straightforward. What would be easy, though, would be get something much better than what we've got at the moment. Yeah. In terms of the bodies within Parliament, we have seen a, a flourishing of the public service in the last five mm -hmm. or six years, which in itself has become a very blunt instrument to actually probably slow down change. Yeah. What have you observed in that time? How have you viewed it from being a lawyer often standing on the other side of the fence? 
Yeah, look, I'm actually quite horrified at the lack of understanding of a lot of even senior public servants about the basic principles of democracy, basic principles of um, human rights, of the Bill of Rights, and of just good public law decision-making. And one of the things that I would personally love to do is to get written into the Public Service Act that all public servants must at all times act in the public interest in accordance with the rule of law um, and, you know, to promote fundamental rights and freedoms or some wording like that to actually create an obligation on public servants to do that. And similarly with, with Crown Law. So Crown, Crown Law has got a large number of lawyers advising government, but because they're lawyers, the advice they give is generally privileged and so i.e. secret advice so they're pulling strings and it's really hard to know what strings they're pulling and what they're saying so my view is that crown law should be under a statute and again it should make very clear that their obligation is to act in the public interest and in accordance with principles of public and constitutional law and actually pin them down about and of course with the bill of rights and actually pin them down so that they've got a higher obligation than just doing what the latest bureaucrat wants them to do mm. and and i think just a few things like that could actually make a huge difference you know i i worked for the government for a few years and my view and and it was really um just i was shocked how strongly people in government disagreed my view was if i was giving legal advice that affected somebody else's rights my advice should be given to the affected person and if i if they could understand my advice and they agreed with it well that's great if they thought i was wrong they could come back and question my advice and we could then sort out you know come to an agreement about what should be done whereas at the moment it's all done in secret um you, you know you apply under the official information act for for information it's all redacted it takes months to get it and by then the issues have moved on and and there's just so little accountability that government just lapses into really bad practices Mm. Well, so, speaking of those bad practices, I mean, that's the great irony of it. I mean, as you said, that process is very long and drags out. And yet they seem to be passing a lot of law under urgency. So why? Oh, shocking. shocking. Again, bad practice. You know, it happened to me. I did the um, Vax Challenge case in May 2021, where we challenged the legality of the vaccine rollout of a provisionally consented vaccine with 58 outstanding health conditions and safety and, and integrity conditions in the High Court because at that time, a provisional consented medicine could only be used for the treatment of a limited number of patients and the government was trying to roll it out to everyone in New Zealand over 16. And so the court agreed that everyone in New Zealand over 16 was not a limited number of patients. I mean, why would anybody put everyone in New Zealand over 16 at risk when the safety trials hadn't been completed? It just legally didn't make any sense. Ethically, it didn't make any sense. And just medically, it didn't make any sense. But what happened was the government changed the law within 24 hours of that court decision to remove the words for the restricted treatment of a limited number of patients. For me, that was inexcusable. And what was even more inexcusable was the Attorney General, David Parker, said, oh, it's just a technical change. He told everyone it was a technical change. And, you know, I think that 
The world has got so complicated that you actually need intelligent, wise people in parliament. You know, these kind of career politicians that have got no life experience, they don't know what it's like to queue up in the supermarket with two toddlers and no money to pay your bills. You know, they've Mm. just, they've had it too easy and they don't understand the complications that people are living with. And they don't understand how the law works, so they just sort of defer to the advice of somebody without really looking at it. They don't understand much about science, so they just defer to somebody else's advice. And they they don't have the analytical skills that we need to actually turn things around. The legal profession, let's face it, over-represents the number of politicians that we've always had. And that has been, I think, a case of politics worldwide or within the Western canon at least. You're struggling even to find somebody like a Paula Bennett, for example, who was a solo mum on a benefit. Those sorts of politicians don't seem to be around anymore. They, They now seem to come through this politics factory of young politicians that are joined the youth wings of the party and then they sort of there is a solid churn all the way through and the bubble of Wellington is a very, very rarefied bubble. There was I saw a, an article um Tori Fano and she was uh, lamenting the quote unquote loss of her social life now that she's in the in the public eye and she's had to go from the back rooms and being thrust in as mm. mayor. And so then, of course, that brings up two issues, doesn't it, in terms of her readiness actually for the role. So what was her qualification to be a a candidate in the first place? And then once you get the role, actually accepting that there is a job here to do and that job doesn't include going up most, you know, two or three nights of the week and having a few winesies and forgetting to pay bills here and there and taking your dog in and breaching council rules and doing all of that sort of stuff. That sort of accountability seems to have disappeared. The electorate, are the voters noticing? Are they feeling like they're wanting to go back to real people that actually reflect them in Parliament? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, people have just had enough of the sort of arrogance. I mean, this this David Seymour being proud that he convinced the politicians not to come and speak to the protesters because one or two he didn't like. I mean, how outrageous. How can he even think that it's okay to be proud about that? And of course, voters have had enough of that. Of course, voters want real people that they can have a chat with. You know, um, we took the electoral challenge, uh, the broadcasting allocation, because there's such a massive disparity. Um, Labor get uh, 1.2 million in the small parties get 66,000 and you're not allowed to spend any other money on broadcasting. So the broadcasting allocation basically decides which parties are going to get elected based on the outcome of the last election and the allocation that they're given. And part of what, um, I, as part of that, we got all of the documentation from the Electoral Commission and Labor actually said, um, oh, we need more than our share of money because we've been the only party running the government and so we need more money to explain to the public the things that they don't like about what we've done. I mean, how outrageous, <laughs> how outrageous is that? And, mm. and oh, you know, and they also said, oh, we won't be able to go to any public meetings because we're scared of the public. Well, how can it be that a representative is even um, admits saying that. Like, if the public don't like you, shouldn't you be going out finding why and talking to them instead of hiding from them? 
You know, mm. it, it's they're off, they're off the rails so badly. Do you feel that there has been culturally a shift in terms of the general population noticing this bad behaviour more than they ever had before? They're certainly talking about it more than they have before. And it's interesting. It's been the the builders and the plumbers and the sort of the, the working people that are just out there every day slogging away and getting hammered who are the ones that seem to have been onto it first. You know, we, we talk to a lot of those people and they're just shocked about what's going on. But I think what's happening now is even the more affluent middle class, so-called, are starting to notice it too. And, they're you know, things are getting harder for them as well. And it's about time that they did notice it because the way mm. the agenda Hitting, they are going to be really hammered over the next few years. Sort of Leah, cultural Marxist type policy that we've been awash with for the last six years, for me, is driven out of affluence. Yeah. So when you've now got a massive squeeze and everyone is being squeezed, and I think now people are noticing they're being squeezed, that is when yeah. they start asking questions. And I know that during the COVID particularly the height of the, the pandemic issues, a, num- a number of conversations in the circles that I moved in is like, when will people wake up? And mm. they would say to me, Marie, when do you think people will wake up? And I said, when it hits them in the wallet. Yeah, when it really hurts them. You know, I mean, great that Voices for Freedom and other groups have been encouraging, you know, self-sufficiency and communities being resilient and connections. And, you know, New Zealand Doctors SOE has been doing a great job making networks and giving advice to people. And there's all sorts of great community projects going on. You know, we've been stunned. Even after the very first lockdown, we did our first Walk, Chalk and Talk tour of New Zealand. And we were having these amazing meetings you know, there was a meeting in Turangi. I think at the time we were only supposed to have 25 people in a meeting. We put out our 25 chairs and half an hour before the meeting, they were well and truly full and overflowing. And people just kept crowding in from all over the place, desperate for more information and and, and desperate. And, they, and they'd say, gosh, my neighbour's here. I'm so excited. My neighbour thinks the same as me. I thought it was only me. Mm. And so as people have got a bit braver and started talking to each other and connecting, they're starting to realise that gosh, my bad feeling that I was having about this isn't just me. A lot of people are sharing these concerns and Mm. snowballing out into the community. It's great. Let's talk about bravery and particularly legal bravery because your decision that was recently, so when was that? 4th, 5th of August? Yeah, 4th, yeah. That to me expresses bravery from the legal community to actually feel emboldened to do their job, which I think for a number of years, there's been pressure on a variety of different people, whether they be lawyers or doctors or other associations, that actually doing their jobs is not politically expedient for them to do so. I mean, what are your, I mean, explain for people, I know you've discussed this before, but explain to people what those charges were and how that decision, I think, is has a bigger, more important context, mm. particularly when it comes to freedom and freedom of speech. Yeah, thanks. So I had a whole series of complaints about me back in sort of mid to late 2021 because I was allegedly um, challenging government COVID policy and challenging government COVID response and basically asking questions, asking questions that lots of people were probably asking, but I'd posted them up on our Outdoors Party Facebook page and other people in our team had posted questions as well and were asking the same sort of thing. 
And um, there was a lot of pressure on the law society to, to control me. You know, she's a lawyer. People know she's a lawyer and you can't let her say, ask these questions. And at the start, the law society, the Nelson District Law Society um, was quite concerned, I suppose, about my conduct. And, that, you know, gosh, this lawyer's speaking out and it's not okay. But, but I defended it on, and they laid charges against me, which could have resulted in, in the end of my career, I suppose. Um, but, but I defended it on the basis of freedom of speech and that also there are rules for lawyers, but they don't apply to your whole life. They apply when you're being a lawyer. Whereas in my case, I'm also a politician. I'm a mother. I'm, I'm a, I'm a free spirit. I suppose I'm an adventurer. I'm allowed to have my own views and, and I'm allowed to ask the questions politically that I wouldn't have been necessarily asking as a lawyer. And so in this hearing, it all came to a head, but they agreed with me, which was great to see. And, you know, I gave them um, quotes from Sir Geoffrey Palmer, who was obviously our former prime minister and the president of the Law Commission, talking about the importance of free speech and talking about the importance of challenging government and 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 the right to even defame government if you want to, because that's what a democracy requires. And I, I gave them um, information or a, a Supreme Court decision from the United States where the judge was very critical about the COVID response and how all these daily law changes and constant changes and bad decision-making by a handful of people excluding consultation. And, you know, when you do these things, it doesn't end up with good, robust decisions. And so I, I gave them a lot of um, good, well, I thought it was good material to really just remind them that they shouldn't just be looking at what did Sue Gray say or what was she alleged to have said, but how does this all fit with, with freedom of speech, human rights, and the different roles between lawyers and politicians. You know, how can you be an opposition politician if you're not allowed to challenge the government? Yes. Yeah. It's just the nonsense, you know. Um, and so, yeah, they agreed with me. And, and I had a really good hearing. It was a little bit more difficult at the start. But as the day went on, they started to understand what I was saying. And they asked some really good questions, I thought. And they asked some really good questions to the Law Society's lawyer. Um, and then you're always a little bit nervous waiting for the actual decision. And especially because I know that some of the, my medical colleagues have been waiting a long time for their decisions, um, even after quite good hearings. But, you know, full credit to the um, disciplinary tribunal. They, they took less than two weeks to write up the decision. And, and I was really relieved to see it. And I think it's super important. I'm seeing it as a turning point for reclaiming our fundamental rights and freedoms. That turning point, how does that express across to those medical colleagues? Because I know of medical colleagues who are currently working in the system who are angry, mm. beyond apoplectic angry, because they feel that they have been silenced by both the ministry and the New Zealand Medical Council that they can't even express their opinions in a private context without the threat of losing their registration. So how could your decision potentially allow those doctors and other medical professionals to be able to at least hold their own private views openly without the threat of censure? 
Yeah, well, it certainly recognises that if you're wearing your professional hat, you've got certain duties. But if you're not wearing your professional hat and you're obviously not wearing it 24-7, then you're entitled to have your own personal views. Um, and that's that's great. I think it's a great reminder for everybody. But I actually think with the, with the medical issue, there's some really important questions because some of the directives that doctors have been given that they are not to discuss the risks and the alternatives and the uncertainties with the vaccine, in my view, are actually unlawful directions because the doctors are required to um, ensure informed consent. Mm. And how can it be lawful for the medical council or anybody else to tell a doctor that they can't warn the patients that this medical treatment has got only provisional consent, it hasn't finished its long-term safety studies, we don't know what the reactions are with different drugs, all of the things that, you know, if you go and get an operation at hospital and they've done thousands of operations over the years, they will still tell you, you know, there may be a risk of bleeding and there may be a risk of of all sorts of different things and and you know you have to sign a piece of paper to say I understand these risks and I want to do it anyway but how on earth did it ever happen that people were given lesser rights and lesser information about a, a medical a new medical treatment that was still undergoing testing that had only provisional consent and how on earth did it happen that the medical council was allowed or, or did condone that miss well condone doctors or enforce doctors to not share that information. Look, I think there's going to be a huge amount of unraveling coming out of this. Mm. It, it, I've been assisting um, Rory Nan's parents, you know, and he was um, found by the coroner in the first stage of the inquiry to have died from myocarditis caused by the Pfizer vaccine. And the second part of the inquiry goes to informed consent. And it started out looking at what was he told and, and what was the flow of information from the um, you know health ministry of health type people through to the vaccinators and through to him but there's also a much bigger question that under the traffic light system he was not able to go to his own wedding without getting getting this injection he was not you know not only his job and all the other things but he was not allowed to go to his own wedding now that's coercion and under any interpretation of the law, coercion prevents informed consent. And it's the same for rape and assault, all those things mm. as well. This is not a novel principle we're talking here. This is an absolutely established principle that's required for informed consent. And so, you know, there's some really important questions that, that the medical... I, I, if I was in the medical council looking at some of those directives that they'd given to our New Zealand doctors to try and close down conversations on informed consent, I'd be getting pretty nervous. Mm. I'd be I'd be wondering how I could um, backtrack and 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 build a few bridges again and apologise and and get out of that awful situation that they put doctors in. And I'm well, I guess a lot of us are waiting to see how that's going to happen and how that's going to play out. Well, having seen a number of the letters that I have, that that directive didn't just, those councils were weaponized by the government mm. because the ministry issued guidelines 
through each of those organisations. And the letters then came out from, I mean, I've seen the one from the Dental Council, the Medical Council, the Nursing Council and the Midwifery Council. And those letters, other than the mastheads and the people signing them at the bottom, are almost all identical around the COVID response. So either they're all very psychic and they'd like to write the same letter or this decision was not theirs. It's worse because very similar letters in other countries as well. It wasn't just psychic New Zealand councils coming up with the same advice. It was internationally. And, you know, there's more and more information coming out. I don't know if you saw the Australian last weekend and massive front-page story. Um, I mean, that's a very established mainstream media in Australia, really, um, well, a whistleblower from exposing a lot of what went on. And New Zealand, unfortunately, is so far behind. Our media has been publicly funded by New Zealand on air from the government on condition that they promote the COVID narrative for the government. And, you know, you really have to ask these questions about how how this could, you know, I mean, that's another issue we need to do on the political side is not have propaganda, and it is propaganda, controlled media, closing down alternate views. And that's one of the things that was recognised in my um, disciplinary tribunal decision as well, that if the mainstream media, the fourth estate, had have done its job and had have covered different perspectives, then it wouldn't have been so difficult for professionals to speak out and ask the questions. And it was only because a lot of people were just getting a single narrative that it sounded so outrageous when people like me and some of the doctors started asking questions. And it made people, you know, feel really uncomfortable because it was the first time they'd heard anything like this. And they just couldn't believe that the government would have pushed something when there were so many unanswered questions. I had a conversation with someone in the during a colleague actually during when the vaccine rollout was starting. We were talking about are we going to get it or aren't we not? By that stage, some of the negative data was starting to filter through in places from Israel and and the United States, which for me it was a raising alarm, alarm bells. And I could see cultural strategies that were used that have been used to perpetuate the sort of culture wars for lack of a better term being rolled out during the COVID pandemic. So I was already highly suspicious because I was seeing the strategies rolled out. I brought up with her, I said, oh, have you seen this data and this data? I said, you know, it does raise some questions. And she goes, why aren't they putting this on the news? I haven't heard anything on the news. And that social trust, where, how do we get that trust in our society back? How do we rebuild the social contract? Because trust in the media is at an all-time low. I think trust in our medical system is at an all-time low. How do we recapture that? Yeah, look, we we have to just actually go back and talk to people and actually rethink this whole thing. Like, for example, our health policy is let's focus on keeping people healthy rather than all this focus on fixing sick people. So, you know, if people have got a good good nutrition and you're you've got a healthy environment, people don't generally get sick. Um, it's a way more cost effective and just public good way of of running a health system. But of course, at the moment, it's so dominated by big pharma that they are very happy with medicating people and then medicating people to address the side effects of the medications. And I think people have been trusting their doctors for so long. But one good thing that's come out of COVID is people really are saying, hang on a minute, this this is clearly not right. So when 
people are ready to think about these things and they are finally ready to look at different ways of doing things. So, you know, maybe we just did need something so dramatic to force people to review a lot of things in their lives and to force us to review the way we run government and to stop this flip-flop back from national labour, national labour, when really they're all running to much the same agendas anyway, and actually jump outside that box and choose a whole new way of doing democracy and a whole new way of running the country, that we actually give the power back to the people, give the power back to local communities to make decisions that are good for them and to support each other and stop selling off everything to overseas. You know, it's not all about the money. We've really got to get the quality of life and the quality of humanity and the and the interesting conversations back into the system. And so, yeah, maybe it just took those awful things to happen to, to give us the shock that we needed to really turn around and do things differently. Mm. Well, on that, where can people find out more information about New Zealand Outdoors and Freedom Party if they want to find out more about your policy? Where do they need to go, Sue? Brilliant. Thank you. Well, we've got a great um, webpage, www.outdoorsparty.co.nz. We've got a lot of our policies on there and our, many of our policies are the same policies from before the last election because we were pretty ahead of the game and we we really thought through these localism, health, regenerative agriculture, justice sort of policies way back then and obviously freedom type policies. Uh, we've got a Facebook page, um, Outdoors and Freedom Party. I've got, if you look up Sue Gray, I've got various different electric pages. I'm standing in West Coast Tasman, which is a really interesting electorate with a lot of free thinkers and lots of small communities. It's a massive electorate, but I've got some brilliant people helping me up and down the coast in, in Tasman and in Golden Bay. Um, so you can find me through there. And Freedoms NZ has got a Facebook page. And Freedoms NZ is going to be having a whole series of big events all around the bigger cities. Um, and we'll be live streaming as much as we can as well. Well, you know, we put out the um, crime policy a couple of weeks ago that's actually addressing the crime issue with good common sense solutions that Brian's led from his mm -hmm. Man Up programs. He actually has got the solutions, which is great. Um, and we'll be putting out another policy soon to deal with the cost of living and some of the sort of community-based solutions that we've got that we're promoting. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of information there. You can talk to any of us. Um, and the other thing for people to just bear in mind, because this comes up all the time, you don't have to like all of us. If you like one of us, you will have one voice in Parliament that really represents you. At the moment, 120 MPs that are all basically towing party lines and they don't represent anybody. They represent mm. globalists. But Freedoms NZ, you know, of course we're all different. We've got different styles. We appeal to different people, but we do have to work together with this, you know, together we're better unity to be able to pull together the, the, the votes that we need to get in. But we just do need people to understand that if any of us appeal to you, please support us. And if any of you know any of the other parties that might be interested in joining us, encourage them to reach out. I'm reaching out to them. I'm waiting to hear back from some of them. We've, there's still time before the election to, to build a bigger block of support and all of those um, undecided voters, hopefully they'll jump on board and support us and we really can get into Parliament and make mm. a massive difference. Well, I asked this of Helen Houghton, so I'll ask it of you, Winston. Would you consider popping under a golf umbrella with Winston? 
I think Winston's very difficult because of his track record of promising one thing and doing the opposite. And it makes it very, very difficult to trust that he actually is there for the people. I mean, Winston, given the choice of choosing the government, chose to be Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Racing. And to me, that says a lot about his priorities, and they're not certainly our priorities. Um, he's probably better than some of the others um, that have got a proven track record. But Winston was part of the cabinet. He was the deputy prime minister that signed New Zealand up to the vaccine way back in May 2020, before the last election. Even in um, October 2021, he was still saying that unvaccinated people should be punished, their, their um, finances should be taken off them. And so, you know, he's got this horrible track record of spotting a group of people, making all sorts of promises and then never delivering. So it would take a fair bit of arm twisting to convince us to work with Winston. No, thank you for a very honest answer. So I do appreciate that. So, hey, look, I really do appreciate your time today. I've been talking to Sue Gray, co-leader of the New Zealand Outdoor and Freedoms Party. We're going to continue this series. So I'm hoping we've, we're putting all the invitations out there. We're wanting to talk to strong women in leadership and in politics. And good luck for the election. So I am sure one of us here at RCR will definitely be talking to you between now and then. Thank you so much. We really appreciate what you're doing. And the chance of talking about these issues is just fantastic. It's, it's really brilliant. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. More still here to come on Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.